Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking coming instead of going. We're talking my hobby, stuffing things. And we're talking Cat Shay getting killed on a toilet. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking strategically placed purple lamps. Oh my god. How many people sent you that gif or picture when you said that you were watching this film? Uh, quite a few. Honestly, though, the, this is the second time. Sorry, everyone. We were discussing Anthony <laughs> Perkins's Psycho 3 starring Anthony Perkins. Yes, it's the Anthony Perkins show. Yeah, I, honestly, so I did watch this movie for the first time two years ago when we covered Psycho 2. I was like... I watched Psycho 2, and then I was like, ah, fuck it, I've got the set. I'll just watch Psycho 3, because I've never seen that before. So I watched Mm -hmm. it, and even then, like, those fucking lamps were the thing that just, like, stuck out the most. In in a, granted, a field of interesting visuals in this film. Yes. Yeah, it's funny, because as I teased last week, I have been waiting to watch this for, like, two years after you and Michael Verratti just went off on how banana pants crazy and weird and unusual this film was. And I have to say, I'm not disappointed, but this is actually far more of a interesting good film than i expected i thought it was going to be sleazy and dumb like texas chainsaw massacre next generation oh yeah no it's definitely not like that but tonally it's so different from those first two movies because there there are there are camp elements here it's like i i still would call the movie campy but it still takes itself seriously enough to where the camp doesn't interfere with the emotional journey let's say that norman goes on Hmm. I would honestly say that I don't find it campy so much as it is comedic. Like, there's a good comedic mm, bent to it, some dark comedy. And yeah, like, like I said, I mean, I actually quite enjoyed this movie. It doesn't quite feel like a psycho film. Right. And yet. I, I, I agree. And that's the thing. It's just... it. It feels so different. And I do wonder Mm -hmm. if it has... So, you know, we have Psycho 1 coming out in 1960. Psycho 2 is the summer of 83. And Mm -hmm. then Psycho 3 is the summer of 86. We saw elements of, like, your typical slasher genre in Psycho 2 in the one scene with the couples killed in the basement of um, of the the, the house. But that's really it, right? And we discussed it in our Psycho 2 episode. So, everyone, if you haven't listened to that, um, please go back and listen to it because it's really good. And Varadi's a really good guest. Mm -hmm. We may repeat some facts about things in this because it was two years ago <laughs> so forgive <laughs> we us if we listen to our own stuff come on well just forgive us if you go like listen to psycho 2 and then come listen to this and you're like well you said that already i already heard this sorry i'm like whatever <laughs> but you know this comes out the same year that friday the 13th part 6 jason lives comes out it okay. comes out a year before it's between nightmare on Elm street 2 and 3 mm-hmm. um i want to say it is around the same time as halloween 4 
so I do wonder if the the increase of slasher movies around the time had fed into this film. Yeah, it definitely seemed like that when I was looking at some reviews, people felt like this was Psycho trying to lean into the 80s slasher craze. And you can see it in a little, like in a couple of different scenes. But overall, I would still say this is so much more mature than what you're getting from other franchise entries in the 80s. I mean, yeah, I think you see it in the kill scene specifically. But outside of those kill scenes, this is Mm -hmm. very much like... It seems like a very personal story, both for Maureen and for Norman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's honestly what I really gravitated to. Like, there's some really interesting shots. I think the editing is really fun. Perkins is doing great work here, and we've got another great co-star for him to bounce off of in Diana Scarwood. And she also dies. <laughs> and she also dies. It, it does feel more akin to Psycho 2 than Psycho in that way. It does. I mean, I, mean, I think just because they're both products of the 80s, you know, you're know, mm-hmm. you not going to have two films that are coming out 22 to 27 years after the original, like, you know, 60s and 80s. And really, it's 1960, but like we could say that Psycho was basically a product of the late 50s. Correct, yes. And since we've been name-dropping it, and there is quite a history to be discussed with regard to Psycho. Mm -hmm. One thing that we're going to get off of our chest right off the top here is that we are not going to be doing a trans reading of Norman Bates as basically a destructive figure for the queer community and more specifically for the trans community. If slash when we do Psycho 1960, Mm -hmm. that is the time and place that we're going to talk about it. At this point, I feel like in Psycho 3 and even in Psycho 2, really what these films are doing for that narrative is that they're linking back to the destructive original property, but it's not its not the thing that people remember or talk about with these films. I'm more interested in talking about Psycho 3 with what has become of Anthony Perkins as an actor and Norman Bates as a character in this world. I agree with you 100%, um, especially because to the folk, yeah, I mean, the focus of two and three is very much more so on the psychological trauma that his mother imparted on him. Mm-hmm. And very much less, I mean, he, he, you know, his cross-dressing in two and three specific, I mean, you, you get that kind of in the first one with that coda at the doctor at the end that's all i'll say on right. that but two and three are very much like no 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 no. like the the cross-dressing is just a ha- it's just a happenstance of his psychosis it has nothing to do with his gender identity yeah no matter what you know mainstream audiences took away from the first film um but again we will discuss that in that episode in sometime. this <laughs> yeah sometime but in this one i mean i think it's really interesting i did a little bit of research today because i, I will confess joe i actually my knowledge of like 50s and 60s, like Hollywood era, like the golden age of Hollywood cinema, isn't mm-hmm. very vast. And by is it very vast? It's I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know about it. <laughs> okay. But, but I know that, I mean, Perkins like got his start doing stuff in the 50s and 60s before, oh, sorry, in the 50s before Psycho kind of like, he was already a name before Psycho came out, right? He was. Honestly, if you want to look at comparable narratives, Mark Patton is his 80s equivalent where they were being groomed for romantic leading man roles, mm-hmm. uh, secretly queer, do a horror film. It basically ruins their lives and their careers, and they get stuck with the moniker for the rest of their lives. Well, and what I think it's kind of, yes. And so really, it's, I think it's like for most of the 70s that Perkins was kind of like, 
not doing so hot career-wise. And then yes. Psycho 2 actually was a career resurgence for him, where it was mm-hmm. like, oh, like, Anthony Perkins is back. Lean into it, right? Like, this is who you are to everyone now. You might as well go with it and try to make some fucking money. But it's also, I just think as a person, it, Perkins, at least publicly, was a bit of a cipher. Like, you, I looked into some research about what his friends said about him and, like, you know, just what, because I remember, I think, when we did Psycho 2, I was like, wait, he was gay, right? Like, I he, he's, he did marry a woman. He does have two children. Mm-hmm. But I was like, wait, wait, wait. But yes, he very much was. And there's, but there's a lot going on there. Like, he was a yes. fiercely private person. Mm-hmm. One thing that people agree on, too, is that he always prioritized his career over anything else. Oh, yeah. He was hella ambitious. Absolutely. But no matter what, the career always came first. So, I mean, basically, like, you know, they say they meaning like people that knew him said that he was extremely shy, especially in the company of women. There was a book written by Charles Weinkoff in 1996 called Split Image, The Life of Anthony Perkins. So this was actually a posthumous book because Perkins did die from um, AIDS-related pneumonia in 1992. Mm -hmm. I've read that book and it is great honestly very juicy is it okay so that's what i i, I want to read it now and also the fact that it came out in 96 is mind-boggling to me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah supposedly uh perkins had had exclusively same-sex relationships until his late 30s he was born in 1932 so i mean like up until pretty much 1970 we're looking at him having exclusively male-to-male relationships yeah so one of these relationships he had was actually with tab hunter now yes. does that name ring a bell for you it does, yes. I love Tab Hunter. Okay, so uh, again, th- this is where my blindness to that era of Hollywood is coming in. I didn't know who he was. Um, uh, okay. So th- this was also like much like Rock, Rock Hudson. He was a, a closeted gay man who was like the it boy of the 50s um, and mm. the, some of the 60s. He is you know, stunningly he, gorgeous. Oh, Oof. absolutely. He is so attractive. It is insane. <laughs> but yeah, so Perkins' relationship with Hunter is kind of one of the biggest like gossip things that came out of that Mm -hmm. and there is a documentary that came out five years ago i'm sorry six years ago now because it's 2021 called tab hunter (laughs) confidential (laughs) another great property yeah it's really good i mean everyone it's at least in the states it's streaming for free on amazon prime it's like a 90 minute documentary and it's fucking awesome but uh, and hunter died unfortunately died two years ago but hunter came out in 2005 in his Mm -hmm. own memoir so he was also fiercely private um didn't come out till he was like in his late 60s early 70s but their their relationship was such a thing that we even have J.J. Ayers and Zachary Quinto working with Paramount Pictures to bring a movie of their affair to the big screen. Um, but in this documentary, Tab Hunter does say that he had a wonderful relationship with Perkins. Um, they met at the pool at the Chateau Marmont, and Hunter was attracted to Perkins' talent and intelligence. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I am also attracted to talent. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, in the, in this documentary, Hunter's actually, because they, they have Hunter for this, and they filmed it three or four years before he died. He's very candid, but also, like, you can still tell, like, he's a very private person. Hmm. Also married someone 30 years his junior, so good for him. A man or a woman? Man. Man. Okay, yeah. Um, yes. He married his uh, partner for, uh, uh, they met in the 80s after Hunter had John Waters' polyester. Um, this is a Fox executive uh, named Alan something um (laughs) but um, they got married in 2013 and they were married until his death oh that's sweet yeah but him and perkins did have a pretty close relationship perkins bought an apartment like around the corner from hunter so they could Mm -hmm. easily like be together but like out of the public eye yep hunter and perkins would go on double dates with natalie wood who would sneak out the back door to go meet up with dennis hopper while hunter and perkins like did their thing 
It was actually kind of interesting. Um, then the, you also have Venetia Stevenson, who is basically their beard, and she acknowledges that. But she does acknowledge that Perkins was more in love with Hunter than Hunter was with Perkins. Because hmm. Hunter was like your kind of macho man, and Perkins was a bit more... I, I don't want to use the word soft, because that sounds offensive, but mm-hmm. more more shy more um sensitive which again sounds like euphemisms for soft but (laughs) here we are but perkins did freely describe himself as a mama's boy which i think is interesting but unfortunately their relationship kind of petered out because it's kind of bad it kind of like really sucks but hunter did a live tv show of something called fear strikes out and then went to perkins and said Oh, yeah, I want Warner Brothers because he was under contract with Warner Brothers to buy the script for him to make this a movie for me. Perkins then went to Paramount, who I guess he was with, and had them buy it for him. And Perkins ended up taking the role in that film. And so that kind of ended their relationship, or at least was the beginning of the end of their relationship. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it'd be hard to trust somebody after... I mean, that's some pillow talk action, right? Where you're confessing something to your lover and then they use it to gain a professional upper hand. Because, like, technically these two men were rivals in Hollywood. Like, they Mm -hmm. they would be going after the same kind of roles. So for Perkins to use that kind of insider information is... I think it's very telling about that ambitious professionalism piece where he's like, I will do anything to get a leg up, even if it means fucking over my literal fuck buddy. Well, but see, I wonder too, if like having to be closeted for that, for your entire life basically plays a part in that, you know, for him, it's like, Oh, well me being with a man, like, isn't a, isn't a viable or realistic option because it's just, it's, it's not just not possible. Yeah. So why put any faith or focus on a relationship when you could have a career instead. Also, if we're going by what Venetia Stevenson said, where she's like, oh, well, Perkins liked Hunter more than him. So maybe there was like this kind of power play going on there where he's like, fine, you don't love me anymore. You don't love me as much as I love you. So I'm just going to go do this and maybe make you jealous. I mean, again, I'm... Wait, are you writing like a gossip column right now? Are you doing speculation <laughs> corner here? I mean, I, I, the thing is we have to speculate, right? Because Perkins didn't really comment on any of this stuff before he died. And... It really is sad. He described homosexual encounters, um, like the sex from that, as unsatisfying. And so in 1971, when he was 39 years old, he went through intensive psychotherapy. um, Which, again, it seems par for the course for that time period, but it it sucks. Even the Uh, fact that we're calling it psychotherapy i'm like well uh let's call it what it is right we're talking about gay conversion therapy and after this he then marries two different women and has two children right well so yeah in 73 he married he was 41 he married barinthia barry berenson who was 25 years old mm-hmm. and they married like basically um a year later and they had two sons oz perkins of course the director of um gretel and hansel and the black coats daughters one of them Mm-hmm. But they stay married till he died from age-related pneumonia in 92. But I find it fascinating that, you know, going through the 80s, going through the AIDS crisis, he makes Psycho 2 and 3. He isn't diagnosed HIV until 1990-ish, whenever mm-hmm. they're filming Psycho 4. Mm-hmm. And please relate to the audience the context for which he has to publicly state that. Well, okay, so from what I've read, because there are some conflicting reports, but supposedly the National Enquirer posted something, like had an article, again, this is a tabloid column in the States, mm-hmm. posting that, that Perkins had AIDS, which then prompted him to actually go get tested, and he was positive. Yeah. 
Now, there are some that, again, the timeline is really misconstrued because Perkins just never talked about it, like, especially publicly, which, mm-hmm. you know, he had no, he didn't owe that to anybody. No. But it's just, again, just seeing how gay queer people, I'm sorry, but especially gay men, like, were treated in this time period in Hollywood. It's just, ugh, it's really depressing. And I almost, I mean, I almost, I do hate the fact that he died so early. I think he was like 60 years old. Yeah, he's not old. To, before you can even talk about this, if he even wanted to talk about this, it's just really sad. Yeah, having read the biography, it did seem like he was the kind of person who would always say, well, why don't you talk to me about my career? That's where your priority should be, as opposed to like my personal life. Well, it's, I was just I think it, it, it's interesting, right, though, because we're two people who like we do. I mean, you're a bit more private than I am on the air, but like we're both like fairly open and candid about our lives. And that's just, it's not always, I mean, we're not celebrities though. (laughs) (laughs) We are actively not celebrities. Yeah. But, but, but like, I can't imagine being as fiercely private as Perkins or even tab Hunter were Mm -hmm. because it's just, it's not the way I've been, but I'm also, you know, I grew up in the nineties and the two thousands and the 2010s. This is in the fifties and sixties. Right. And I mean, we came of age at a time where it was becoming popular to be queer, where safe space started to become a popular term, where being diagnosed with AIDS wasn't a death sentence anymore. I mean, think about the career implications for Perkins, not just being gay in the 80s, but having rumors swirling that he had AIDS. People didn't want to touch people with AIDS. So how do you work on a movie set? Like, he he literally could not afford to be gay, and he certainly could not afford to be HIV positive. Well, and that's even the career trajectory. So, I mean, you know, Tab Hunter didn't come out till 2005-ish, but... He began the 80s being in, like, his career was basically dead. He did, like, a couple, he had, like, one, like, sleazy horror movie in the 70s. But he mm-hmm. had a career resurgence in 1981 when he decided to be in John Waters' Polyester. Right. And then we have Perkins doing Psycho 2 in 83. So they're both going through this career resurgence. Well, Tap Hunter does a movie with Divine and Lenny Kazan called Lust in the Dust, with um, which... <laughs> and that's actually how he met his his husband, who was a Fox executive. But he went to Perkins. Um, this would have been like around 83, 84. So like right after Psycho 2 came out and said, hey, I have a part for you. I would love for you to do it. Even though like they haven't really like seen or spoken to each other in years. Right. Perkins said he would love to do it, but it wasn't what the project he was looking for at the moment. So he turned him down. And that was the last time they saw each other before Perkins' death. But I just find it interesting, you know, Tap Hunter basically, without coming out, goes to this crazy queer property where he's making out with Divine in a John Waters film. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think he realized that there was still career opportunities for him. I I think the difference is, is that Anthony Perkins felt like he he never wanted to go that route because it wasn't legit, right? Like, unfortunately, he... I think he actively hated the fact that he had to work in horror in the same way that like Wes Craven was desperate to try to make music of the heart, right? You know, these yeah. people who are forced into a genre and then can't get out of it, even though the genre loves them for it. Well, I also wanted to, because by this point, Perkins had settled down with his wife and he has two kids. So he's like, I don't need to be, I mean, again, I'm just supposing here, but I don't want to be <laughs> around my former lover, my former male lover for a significant amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it should be noted that in the biography, and maybe this is just people being (laughs) bitchy gays, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of talk about the fact that he was still having affairs with men throughout his 
marriage. Right. And, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Like, if you read into the nature of his relationship with Bernie, they actually talk about the fact that they weren't like a husband and wife, but that they were a great team. And it seems like they had a great affection for one another. So even if we want to say Anthony Perkins was still very much a gay man in Mm -hmm. a heterosexual, you know, beardy relationship... They were making it work, and they loved each other. Well, and that's the thing, too, right? Because people always refer to Perkins as gay, and it's just like, well, like mm-hmm. the words bi or pan are never thrown around. Which I mean, exactly. Pan would... Which again, it's like if he had have lived longer, then maybe he would have been able to embrace some kinds of other. I mean, if he even chose to a talk about it or b label himself. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, these are things that we'll never know because it's not our privilege to. Nope. No, it's not our. Well, we're not entitled to it, technically. Yes, it's it, we're not entitled to that information, so. But I did, I do find it fascinating, right? Like, when you think about it, Perkins is a huge queer icon in mm-hmm. the genre. And again, like, setting aside the, the traumatic history and legacy of the original Psycho, like, right. when we think of very recognizable queer figures in horror, like, Anthony Perkins is right here, but we don't talk about him that way. I, I don't know why that is. I think because he... He doesn't really branch out too, too much. Like, he really just does Norman Bates. Yeah. Whereas we see a lot of other people kind of come around to it and they dabble in other horror roles or they show up as, you know, bits that they lampoon themselves. He never does that. Hmm. <sighs> well, nevertheless, I mean, it's just sad. Like, I, I, I get sad, like, looking at things like that because it's like, I, I want to put myself, like, I, I wish I could go back in time and, like, see, like, what these lives were like back Ooh, then. I do not. Well, I mean, n- like, f- from a voyeuristic perspective, not to live it, you know? Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, because honestly, um, it just seems really sad and hard. Yeah. Like, I... It's not a shock to learn that a lot of these people were deeply unhappy and that they ended up turning to like pills and booze because coping mechanisms got to get you through. Yeah. So anyway, but Psycho 3 was actually a pretty bright spot for Perkins because it was his first directing gig. Yes. I I think what he did was I think he really embraced this character, right? Because Psycho Mm -hmm. 2, while not like a blockbuster hit, did pretty well financially and critically um, in case people don't remember because Psycho 2 is great Psycho 2 is great everyone please go back and watch it yeah it's awesome <laughs> um, th- but I so I think that's why he got this role is because he was like you know what let's I, I'm sure he was like you know the face of the franchise let's pioneer it I mean again we're calling it a franchise at this point which it is now it is now yeah but I, I appreciate so much of what he... Because he did go on later to admit that he didn't have the, te- the technical knowledge to really do this film um, but that being said, he clearly has a great visual eye. Uh, if this is him not being sure of himself, dude, like, <laughs> you need to be more confident because this is an excellently shot film. Well, I think it's the thing when actors go into directing, you know, I think a lot of them learn by watching because they're on the other side of the camera, but they can see director's work. And so mm-hmm. I think he, I mean, he worked with a lot of amazing directors. So I think he picked up a lot. So had he had the time to actually go through, like, have a directing career and focus on and learn technology, mm-hmm. imagine what we could have gotten from this man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the other th- interesting thing is I don't actually know about any of his other output. Like, I knew that he directed this, but I don't know how many more directing gigs he had. He had one small movie in 88, and that was it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But so, again, yeah. we lost a potentially great talent yeah. behind the camera. Exactly. 
so yeah, I mean, I don't have really any production information on this just because there isn't a ton available. And <laughs> welcome back to the mid '80s. <laughs> and in terms of physical media, I have the Blu-ray four set of the franchise. Um, I did not realize that Screen Factory does have individual releases for two and three that actually have bonus features on them. Uh, mine just plays the movie as soon as you put the disc in. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, I remember you mentioning that when we talked about Psycho Two. <laughs> I did do a little bit of research, and it sounds like if you get the standalone Screen Factory Blue for this film, it does have a good audio commentary oh good yeah um so yeah psycho 3 opens over the 4th of july weekend in 1986 um we're looking at a runtime of 93 minutes so about 25 minutes shorter than psycho 2 this movie does fly by pretty fast it does i don't know that i would have wanted a much longer version of it though i actually think it's quite well paced i do too um so it released <laughs> you by... sound did hesitate <laughs> well i think that the pacing is a bit weird um, it is I, there's I, there's one part in in the plot summary where i'm just going to be like what is happening right now? well i i think it's because while norman is the main character of this movie we're also spending a lot of time with other characters mm-hmm. and then the la- like everything happens in the last 15 minutes like everything happens <laughs> Yeah, I also get the impression that there were notes. I I read a little bit that Perkins did want to focus more on Norman and our new character, Maureen. And I believe he was told, like, hey, it's still Psycho. You need to have murders in here. Well, an early draft, an early idea, I don't even know if it made it to the script stage, though, was that the Jeff Fahey character was actually going to be the killer because he was obsessed with Norman and was trying to copy his kills. I thought that was actually where we were going to go. It feels like the film is setting that up. Yeah, and and I think that's what Perkins actually wanted, especially given the ending of 2 when Norman isn't a killer. Mm -hmm. So I do have mixed feelings about this film basically reverting back to Psycho 1, where it's like, oh no, he's still killing people because he's still psychotic. Yeah, we're still retconning. Good and so I think that's honestly that's probably my only blemish of this film is I wish we kind of kept it but but the studio wanted Norman yeah. he's like no no we have Norman we have to have Norman Bates killing people and I was like but he wasn't killing people in mm-hmm. Psycho 2 and that movie was good yeah and and even the end of this film and we'll get there obviously but that final shot you can feel the studio interference where they're like no, but you're going to put that hand in there, right? Well, and I think what Psycho 2 did really well was it felt very much like its own film, where there, whereas in this film there are a lot of homages or straight-up shots from the first movie. Indeed, indeed, yeah. So, um, we're looking at a budget of $8.4 million. Uh, this film opens in the number 8 slot that weekend with oh, $3.2 million. Now, that sounds bad, but I want to point something out. Okay. There were five new releases this weekend. Oh my gosh. Remember those days? <laughs> Psycho 3 did the best out of all of them. Uh, oh, okay. In, in the 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 slots, it's Psycho 3, The Great Mouse Detective, Ooh. About Last Night, Under the Cherry Moon, and Big Trouble in Little China, all in their first Aww, weekend. Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, that's a great movie too, but it flopped so hardcore. Good. Yeah. But it's beat out by like Karate Kid Part 2 in the number one slot in its third weekend of release. Um, Ruthless right. People, like an R-rated black comedy, in mm-hmm. is number two. Top Gun is in its eighth weekend of release. Uh, right. Ferris Bueller is in its fourth weekend of release. So Holy Jesus, them some stacked... Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's it's a good it, box office right there. It's summer of 86, man. Like, it's just like... I, I, I applaud their 
confidence in releasing this movie because I'm assuming they thought, oh, well, Psycho 2 did good business in the summer of 83, right. so it'll do, like, Psycho 3 will do summer of 86. No. It just, <laughs> it, it wasn't faded. So this is actually why Psycho 4 is a direct-to-TV movie <laughs> because yeah. of the poor, this movie went on to gross $14.5 million. So it did make its money back, but it was a huge, like, I think it made less than half of what Psycho 2 made. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Did we mention that we're covering this because it's three and we're doing a month of threes? Fuck. Oh, my God. <laughs> 30 minutes in. Oh, we're amazing. <laughs> so yeah, we're on week. Th- oh, we're actually on our third week of threes, Joe. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. We have one more next week and we'll tell you what it is at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Reception. It wasn't panned. It was just not. It was mixed reception. Um, okay. We're looking at a 58% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, average score of 5.49 out of 10. Letterboxd, we've got an average score of 5.4 out of 10. Hmm. The funny thing I thought was, so Ebert gave this movie a thumbs up. He said okay. it was better than part two um, and appreciate, I, I know, appreciated <laughs> uh, Perkins' like, directing and also yeah. the performance. Um, okay. But Siskel gave it a thumbs down because, oh and gosh. guess why? Because of tits, I'm guessing? Close. Um, he was turned off by the violence, and oh important God. to know that again because we're on the sixth Friday the Thirteenth film by this point. Like Siskel was done with slashers. He was not kind to them at all. You know what? I'm done with Siskel. I'm so. Mm, I okay. I'm not going to speak ill of yep, the dead. Of the dead, yeah. But honestly, it's your fucking job. Like, guess what? I review horror films all the fucking time. You and I do it each week. Do we complain about the violence each week? No, because it's your fucking job. <laughs> I just it's like if I was like going to a western, like I really hate that there's like a desert there or that oh they my have God, guns. get these horses out of my westerns. <laughs> So, yeah, but I mean, there were a significant amount of critics who actually did prefer this to two. But then, yeah, the general consensus was, oh, well, the problem is it's not, it's just relying on the original without doing anything more with it. And I kind Uh, of agree with that to an hmm. extent. Yeah, I mean, for me, narratively, that's very true. For Mm -hmm. stylistically, I think this film is really swinging for the outfield. Yeah. What was that? I I, I do agree. I do agree. (laughs) Oh, good times. But um but yeah, so that's really it, Joe. Let's let's talk about this plot and this I'm gonna say iconic opening line of this film. <laughs> it is madness, yes. <laughs> it really like just buckles you for the tongue. So I think I said this on the Psycho 2 episode, but when I had like back then, two years ago, when I like finished Psycho 2, I was really mm-hmm. tired and I put in Psycho 3, and I kind of fell asleep on my couch, but then you're going to yell this at me, aren't you? No, no, no. But Diana Scarwood yelling, there is no God, like, <laughs> like made me jump out of my sleep. <laughs> jump out of your sleep. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So we open at a convent where we have a nun named Maureen, who is played by Diana Scarwood. And yeah, she has discovered that there is no God. So she is contemplating suicide at the top of a bell tower. Except when she tries to go and do it, she is restrained by another very kindly seeming nun who she then inadvertently kills. <laughs> Oops. Can you Im- I mean, This is the pre-title sequence. And can I you didn't... Im- I was like, are we watching Alucarda right now? No! What I, is happening? I, it's such a weird way, of, you know, not that we have to have Norman Bates in the opening for this film, 
But I can only imagine going into the theaters in 1986 and getting this, like, mm-hmm. also kind of blasphemous, I guess, because, like, you're killing a nun right away. Like, two minutes in. Yeah. Two minutes into this movie. Yeah, we haven't even gotten the credits, because the credits happen when she leaves this convent, because she's like, well, I'm definitely not a nun anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And also, the shot of this nun falling is really cool, too, because like, you get, like, three different angles of her falling before, mm-hmm. like, she hit, she thuds off screen. Yeah. But, um... It's a it's a fall. It is a long ass fall. <laughs> it is a long like what is this? Batman nineteen eighty nine. She fall then, in like twenty four stories. <laughs> so we've got a dead nun and then a suicidal nun to kick mm-hmm. off this movie. Yes, to kick off our Psycho three. <laughs> <laughs> I also won't lie. I was conflating this one with the fourth one, which is the prequel. So I thought that we were getting a Norman Bates's mother backstory because this also feels like it's taking place in another decade. Yeah, it does. I, the, 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 and the thing with four, because I, I, I have only seen four once and honestly, I don't even think I've seen it in its entirety, but it's a prequel sequel. Like it's like, it, it is oh, set... partially in the past, partially in the present. Well, because it takes, it starts, I think it's bookended or like there's interstitial, but basically the whole plot of four is where Norman is out. He's, he's recovered again. Okay after this movie and he calls a radio show to tell his story oh yes okay so and olivia hussey plays mrs bates <gasps> oh, god damn it now you got me intrigued again <laughs> <laughs> by all accounts it's actually not that good um but i mean again the ingredients are there no, right i mean there's always fascinating tidbits in these films even if you don't like them as a whole i'm there's just stuff to talk about interesting things happen well also, the director of Psycho 4 is none other than Mick Garris, a.k.a. the director of Critters 2 and, like, right. a bunch of other, like, stuff. Oh, Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers. I was going to say, you can say Sleepwalkers, and you can just say Master of Horror. <laughs> yes, there you go. Master of Horror, Mick Garris, co-host of that post-mortem podcast. There we go. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Free plug for you, Mick. There you go. <laughs> okay, so over the credits, she's wandering through the desert. Speaking of the desert, get this desert out of my horror movie. It's a I I don't love this opening credit sequence, but um, someone had pointed out that they really like the music that plays over it, and so I feel compelled to say that the composer for this movie is Carter Burwell. And okay. when teaming with Perkins, he actually they, they were like, we don't want to make it too orchestral. We don't want to because the so the score for two is Jerry Goldsmith, and it does kind of play off of one a lot of Bernard Herrmann's score. This one does not do that, and that was intentional no. because, again, outside of the narrative, everything behind the camera was, let's not make it like Psycho. Yes, indeed. But Carter Burwell is mostly known for scoring pretty much every single Coen Brothers movie, and... Oh. Yeah. But Ker- Perkins was notified of him by coming, by seeing the movie Blood Simple. Yes, because he said that Blood Simple is a is a reference for this film. Yes, especially when you see a lot of the colors, which when I first saw this movie, I thought he was trying to do like Giallo. It's actually mm. a Blood Simple. Like he's trying to do that entire movie stylistically in Psycho 3. Uh, um, fascinating. Random though, but Carter Burwell also scored Wayne's World 2, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a goofy movie, Blair Witch 2, and Twilight. My God, I love this for him. <laughs> it's so good. Like what a career. Also... The whole first season of The Morning Show. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is The Morning Show your new Lizzie McGuire? Because stop it. I'm, moving, I, I'm changing things up for our third year, yo. You are not, sir. <laughs> if nothing else, this you are the Psycho 3. 
making references back to Psycho One, sir. Yep, that's what I am. <laughs> so yeah, she she's just walking through a desert for like three minutes. Yeah, credit, 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 and then she gets to the road and she gets picked up by wannabe rock and roll star Duke, played by the one and only Jeff Fahey. Okay, he has all teeth. All teeth, all the time. But he is very attractive in this movie. He's always attractive. He's always sweaty. Like, I'm thinking of this. I'm thinking of the lawnmower man. I mean, I only really know him from this Lost in Planet Terror. Like, that's it. But I know he's had, like, over 150 credits. Oh, yes. He, uh, he, I was going to say, he gets around. He's like Danny Trejo, you know? (laughs) He is, yeah. Anything for that paycheck, and he loves to come and be in your movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so they're driving. It's a rainy night. Enter our first very obvious uh, psycho reference where we see, you know, the road and the car beams and so on. And uh, then Duke decides to pull the car over because the brakes aren't working so well. And he claims it's also because he wants to get some shut eye. But mostly it's because he just wants to sexually assault. Yeah, we get attempted rape also in the first five minutes of this psycho movie. (laughs) I sure do. And partially... It, I tempt, I was tempted to say that we should put a bit of a content warning because he is super lecherous throughout this movie. Yeah. But I feel like the minute that you see Duke, you like he might as well just have rapist emblazoned on his forehead. But the movie doesn't actually have any. Like, I mean, I know it's attempted sexual assault, but it doesn't actually cross the line into sexual assault. No, because actually Maureen has a good amount of agency. She wakes up. She immediately knows what's going on. She gets out of the car. In the pouring rain. It is so wet. This is torrential downpour. Yeah, it's bad. I, I, I mean, like, good for her. I that that would be really. I mean, again, it's like, do I go to the storm? Do I go to the rapist? Yeah, so you stay in the storm, he checks out her suitcase, and then he just strands her in the middle of this, yeah, monsoon. (laughs) Yep, that's it. And then we get to go see Norman, finally. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, so Dawn breaks. This is when I was like, oh, okay, so that's the end of this flashback weird period, and now we're going to pick up with the modern day stuff. No, no, uh, Dawn breaks at the Bates Motel, where we've got Norman poisoning and taxidermying birds. So, uh, so I... This does take place a month after the events of Psycho 2, and the way you can tell, apparently, so there's a, there's a, the establishing shot of the house, there's a shot of a book in the Mm -hmm. dirt, and it's the book that Meg Tilly was reading in Psycho 2. There's also a shot of the window in the basement, and there's a handprint on it from when that guy was killed down there in Psycho Mm -hmm. 2 as well. I like it. They're subtle nods without, you know, hitting you over the head with it. Well, I think it's just a weird franchise. You know, I mean, I, I had some people reach out. They were like, I didn't even know there were sequels to Psycho. And What? Yeah, but I think really? it's just something that people forget about and also forget that there's actually like a continuity here, right? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like some people might think, oh, Psycho 3 is probably just like some random standalone movie. No, 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 y'all. This is like a continuing story. <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. And to be honest, it would be very challenging to follow some of the events of three, if you don't remember two, because, you know, he's he's stuffing these birds. And Mm -hmm. we pan over to the newspaper that talks about the disappearance of Emma Spool, who we only ever see that as that bonkers ending of two. Exactly. So he flashes back to the end of Psycho 2, where Emma Spool, played by Claudia Breyer, confesses that she is his mom. Spoiler alert, she is not. She's not. And he poisons her and then whacks her over the head with a shovel and kills her. It's it's a very funny visual and probably the most ridiculous part of that movie, but ooh, it's it's good. 
Yeah, and it's a very odd way because again, we're we're now maybe in the first seven minutes of this movie. So it's hmm. like, here's a black and white flashback to him bashing this old lady in the back of the head. Ah, <laughs> uh, God bless you, Psycho 3. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this point, Duke then shows up at the Bates Motel. So this is me being, oh, okay, this is that was not a flashback. That is not a different time period. This movie all takes place in the same time. Yes, cool. it does. <laughs> so Duke more or less just invites himself into a job as yeah. the assistant manager. But you know what? It's fine. This is boring. So like move along movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I do have a note here that you can tell that Norman is a true psychopath because he offers this strange man a job immediately, but also he offers him candy corn. So um, really like, weird looking. Is that what candy corn looked like in the eighties? Like it looked bigger and dustier than normal. I mean, everything in this movie looks dusty. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, Also, just a quick shout out. If you thought that maybe Duke wasn't a total piece of shit because he tried to sexually assault a woman he met. mm, A nun. A nun. A nun. He also has a beautiful little Confederate flag on his guitar. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah. I was like, well, fuck this nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) That he doesn't get a more brutal death is really upsetting. It's super disappointing. But, I mean, maybe that's because originally he was the true killer. He was going to be the killer, yeah. Yeah. So let's go to the local diner, that place that Norman and Emma both once worked at. So everybody's still talking about her because it's only a month later. And people are like, hey, where's Emma Poole? This is where we get our reintroduction to Sheriff Hunt, who is played by Hugh Gillen, and he's very much pro-Norman throughout Which most I, of this movie. Which I love that this movie is, like, pro-police. Like, the police is on his side. <laughs> well, because he paid his debt to society, and then he got out. So the sheriff is like, well, you know what? Like, we couldn't find anything on him, and he did his time, so mm-hmm. he's good. But then uh, we have um, a character that I really like. Love like, her. Oh, Tracy, Miss Tracy Venable. Um, what a great character. She, I mean, she's basically the Meg Tilly of this movie in a lot of ways where she comes in well, no, she, and she, she just kind of strong arms. The she's film, the Vera right? Miles of this movie. Yes, very much so. Yeah. So she is played by Roberta Maxwell. She is a journalist and I love that she's playing it both ways. So she's, you could tell she's very not she's she's anti-norman no, but yeah. then he shows up and she's like hey sit in this booth with me let's talk about you know prison reform i mean she, she, she's honestly the gail weathers of this movie <gasps> <laughs> sir like that's what she is right <laughs> she she very much is yes she i, I mean she it. doesn't get enough zingers but there is one later when she's talking to duke or Dwayne or whatever you want to call him but she's like um you know, all you have is your your teeth, your your pearly whites, your and pretty your... face, and your pearls, and they can yes. get punched out, and all you'll be left with is your charm. <laughs> yes, fucking love it. It's so good. I it's love this character. So good. Yes, I did want to say I feel like because we, I knew we were going to be talking about Perkins. I was keeping an ear out for some of his more queer oriented lines. Mm. Shout out to our sister podcast, Dirty Little Horror, where they're always looking for the queerest line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. But at one point where he's talking to Tracy. Norman says the past is always throbbing inside us and I was like throbbing Throbbing. is such a specific choice yeah no one says throbbing in a non-sexual way no one one says throbbing outside of like member erotica writers yeah oh my god are you thinking about 10 things I hate about you yes quivering member (laughs) the Reginald's quivering member oh my god Alice and Janney why doesn't Mm. Alice and Janney do more horror 
Um, give it time. Give it time. You know what? When the, when the career opportunities dry up for you, Miss Jenny, we'll see you in horror. Once mom is off the air. Right. there. Yeah, probably. They're in season eight, so who knows? Oh my God. Okay. So Norman is having this chat with Tracy, and then this is when Maureen walks into the diner, and she looks exactly like Miriam Crane. She's got a suitcase Marianne, that literally... Marianne. Miriam. No, like Marianne with an N at the end. Miriam. Okay. <laughs> You're putting M as in Mary at the end of that. It is N as in Nancy. Marianne. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You know, this is me playing along with you at this point, right? I know it is. I, it's driving me wild. <laughs> okay. So, yes. So, he's having this conversation with Tracy, and then in walks Marion. Nope. <laughs> God, you fucked me. You... Maureen. <laughs> I'm keeping this in. This is too funny. I hate you. Yeah. So, in walks Maureen. She reminds him of Marion Crane from the original film. We also get a if I'm not mistaken, a black and white memory flashback. No, no, we do. And this is the first transition that I fucking love. So he, she basically looks like Marion Crane. Mm-hmm. And so we get a flashback to the shower, which again, you're like, oh, movie, why are you doing this? Yeah. But we get this awesome transition from when Janet Lee falls and mm-hmm. the camera zooms in on her face, just like it did in the original film. Yeah. But then it, like, Lee morphs into Diana Scarwood and it becomes color. Mm-hmm. And then it, like, there's really weird music playing, and then we get a record scratch sound effect to mm-hmm. bring Norman back into reality. Yeah. <laughs> Literal record scratch. It's a clever way to subvert how you're like, oh, like, oh, we're showing the original again. Oh, wow, we get this really cool transition out of this. Mm-hmm. And this film is filled with amazing transitions. Um, editor of Ghostbusters, by the way. I mean... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, apparently the, all of these transitions um, were Perkins's idea. Right. I mean, which is the thing that I love. He knows that this is very much just kind of calling back to the first film. So he wants to do things a little bit different. He wants to be flashy in his directorial debut. And I, I mean, love that. It, it feels experimental in some parts. But honestly, yeah. I think a lot of these risky stylistic gambles pay off. And mm-hmm. when we get to the blood ice, we'll, we'll talk about that some more. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, I mean, Maureen basically just walked into this diner so that Norman could have this flashback because then she eventually makes her way to the Bates Motel. She encounters Duke. He rents her cabin number one. Infamous, notorious cabin number one. No, uh, Perkins' reaction, number one? Mm-hmm. So good. He's so unhappy. (laughs) And we know that he's very distraught because this is when Mother immediately makes an appearance and she encourages him to get rid of the disgusting little whore. So what do we think of this? Okay, because in the original film, you know, it's very much, okay, Norman can do Mother's voice. Mm -hmm. This movie kind of does it both ways. Yes. So we get one shot of like an ADR of Mother's Voice over Norman later, which we can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But most of this is, it seems like he's imagining Mother's voice. Yeah, it's tricky because we don't actually ever see him verbalize it, right? Like he's always either in shadow or his back is to us. Or she's in shadow. Or she's in, well, she's almost always in shadow. She's almost always in shadow. (laughs) To the point actually that I forgot that this is not original Mother yeah. This is Emma Spool. Yeah, it's it's not original mother original flavor. Yes, the mother 2.0, mother may I dance with danger. What? That one. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Uh 
Okay, so yes, Maureen is safely put away into cabin number one. Norman is unhappy. So that night, Duke enters the empty local tavern where he hits on Tracy, and she is not interested in him at all (laughs) until she sees that he has matches from the Bates Motel. And then she is suddenly no longer as warm as a cry for help. I don't know what that means, but okay. It's such a funny line, and Jeff Fahey is honestly great in this role as well. Yeah, no, he he is really good. And I I do wonder, because, I mean, again, I know I've said this, but, like, Norman is the protagonist of this film, but I do wonder if there's just too much screen time split between, like, all these characters. Mm -hmm. Especially as the film goes on, I'm like, oh, wow, okay, we're cutting back to Tracy as she's, you know, doing some microfiche stuff. Yeah, to the point where, because, again, the film starts with Maureen, but honestly, by the third act, Maureen's kind of a non-entity until her death. Yeah, which unfortunately robs that of some of its strength. Yeah, exactly. So, speaking of Maureen, we actually jump back to the motel and Norman is back to his voyeuristic ways. So he is looking at Maureen as she removes her exceedingly high-waisted 80s underwear. Well, and this is a body double because Diana Scarwood did not want to get naked. Oh, uh, I feel like we should mention to everyone, Diana Scarwood, um, you may know she's a returning actress on this podcast. She is the psychic friend in What Lies Beneath, but she also plays the older, I want to say her name is Christine, but the older daughter in camp classic Mommy Dearest. Right. Which we have not covered on the podcast, but probably could in a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I think we could cover it. It's it's kind of horrifying. Uh, it's great. I love it. It's something. <laughs> okay. Don't fuck with me, fellas! I'm glad that you didn't do the wire hangers, because no, that's No, no, that's an obvious that's one. I, lo- I love a PG movie that says fuck. I guess you do. <laughs> so yeah, we get um some, some nudity, some tits in this mm-hmm. movie immediately. There is some weird, like, chanting going on on the score as well, which yeah. I kind of thought was interesting. It's interesting, though. Well, we both said that. Um, because, again, like, so Jerry Goldsmith did part two. But Jerry Goldsmith, one of his most famous scores is The Omen, which famously oh. is crazy chanting. Yeah. So it almost feels like Burwell is, like, ripping off, not ripping off, but, like, <laughs> using... Um, is Channeling. taking influence from one of Goldsmith's older scores because it, yeah. it did. I did get Omen vibes from the score sometimes with that chanting. It's really it's like intense Latin chanting. Yeah, and it's not subtle. It's not like no. oh, am I hearing a little chanting? It's like hey, chanting. Yeah, it, it is booming over your speakers. Uh huh. So this is where we get the second fantastic transition where we see the light under the door to the bathroom turn into the glint off of the knife as Mother advances on Maureen. Mm-hmm. And mm. you think, okay, wow, uh, we're going to kill off Maureen just like we did Miriam. And no. Nope. Miriam. Oh, wait, no. Damn it. No, you're right. <laughs> oh, my God. I- <laughs> Shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> I cannot believe I did that. Wow. Wow, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you really got me confused. It's your fault. Continue. Oh, it's oh, it's my fault. Okay. You know what? <laughs> so we think we're going to get another shower kill, basically. Yes. Except that she's actually already tried to die by suicide by slitting her wrist. And then we get this fantastic shot where we see from her perspective Norman wearing the mother outfit and holding this knife and he changes into the Virgin Mary with a crucifix. So two things. One, the practical effects on her wrists are really, really good. Like it's they look good. It's really I mean, upsetting bad. when like, yeah. you see the blood gushing out. Mm-hmm. Two, how weird 
is this Virgin Mary thing. Oh, I love it. I fucking love it. <laughs> it was so unexpected. I, it was not where I thought this movie was going to go at No! <laughs> but, like, I love it for that. Because oh, no, yeah. Immediately, I, I, I was like, oh, God, this movie is really just doing Psycho. And then it's like, no, it's not. So stop. And, and no, and, and that's kind of the smart approach that the screenplay takes, is that, yeah, it keeps saying, oh, you think you're going to get Psycho? Yeah, you do, you do, you do. Whoops, sorry, mm-hmm. crazy Virgin Mary thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and then this scene just ends. There's no resolution to it until Maureen wakes up in the hospital, and we find out that Norman, <laughs> apparently he only likes to kill people if they're going to be surprised and maybe fight back a little bit. So he <laughs> took her to the hospital, and they have this genuinely nice moment he invites her to come back and stay at the motel he says his trademark line we all go a little mad sometimes yeah i didn't need that i did not need it yeah that that that, that was too like it uh, yeah too on the nose it is yeah you're just like no we get it you don't need that Mm -hmm. (laughs) so this is where we get another great transition as he exits the hospital room he closes the door and he's just immediately in mother's room back at the motel Oh man, you are really like on these transitions. I, I, I good for you. Uh, it's it's really just those ones, and then after that, I've got like fun things about the murders. But uh, got it. I just I thought that they were so visually compelling. Like I didn't expect it from this movie, and it really caught my eye. No, because I mean, no one, no one again in quotes talks about Psycho Three, and yeah. so I feel like anyone is going to walk into this movie with relatively low expectations. Now, granted, it's the same with two. That that really pays off for two because two is like way better than it had any right to be. Mm-hmm. While three doesn't reach those heights, it's still like again way better than you think it's going to be. Yes, which I feel is like what we have discovered about this month of threes. Threes get a bad rap in horror, and I feel like all of these films that we're talking about they're better than people give them credit for. They may not be slam dunks, but they're always better than you think. They're also all different. Like all yes, of these threes, <laughs> no, but yeah, every single one we've done, and with the exception of maybe Final Destination three for the audio commentary on Patreon. Oh, I like, like that plug. <laughs> every single one of them is so different from the two that came before, and this will go doubly, triply true for next week's film. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, uh, let's introduce another new character. She's a fave of mine. This is Red, Red. played by <laughs> Juliet Cummins. <laughs> Who's just going to be naked a lot. I mean, she's basically just the slutty townie that Duke has picked up. So when he couldn't get with (laughs) Tracy, he went with her. Yeah. And this is where we get this iconic what the fuck sex scene where she is dancing around naked. Duke has apparently put up nothing but pornography all over the walls of his room in the, what, 24 hours that he's been there? Yeah, and he's changed the lighting completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is where we get our jazzy purple light sex thing. Appar- and so here's the thing. Apparently Perkins wanted him to be fully in the nude. Now, yes, he did. <laughs> don't know if his penis would have been like on screen or if it would have I been hidden. I think so. I think it would have been. I think so too. Gay man, y'all. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, Fahey did not want to do that. So yeah. I think he came up with the idea for the lamps. He did, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but how he's not only holding one over his cock, he's holding one like against his chest for no reason. And he's just lit purple. Like the the, the lighting in this movie is something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks like he's trying to do some kind of, you know. Performance art? 
Yeah, like he's <laughs> he's doing his own strobe light show for this girl, giving her like you know stripper lighting or something. It's yeah. very fun, but it's also kind of like why 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 do we have this scene? Just, I guess it's only to why. give us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just gives more time with Red before she dies, I guess. Like, there's not really a purpose to this scene. No, not really. It's, you just need to know that she's at this motel, and then she gets thrown out after Coitus, and uh, she goes to make a phone call because she didn't arrive here by herself, and she needs to call a taxi. And this is where we get our first true murder sequence in the film, as Mother stabs her to death in the phone booth. I had to wonder if this was an homage to the birds. Okay, explain. Well, no, because there's a whole scene where Tippy Hedren's trapped in a phone booth and the birds are attacking her. Mm. I mean, it, it may be too far, too much of a reach, but I, I just... So I have three favorite phone scene attacks, and it's the birds, and it's this, and it's the um, the waitress, the, the diner lady, and the blob. And the blob. <laughs> I, well, it's funny that you said that, because the blob was where I immediately went to this, but I think it's just because it's shot overhead. Yeah, yeah, and then that would come out two years after this, so I, honestly, it's possible Chuck Russell saw Psycho 3 maybe i will say i'm a sucker for a phone booth death and i would invite other scenes like this and i would like to hear from listeners if they have other recommendations and don't say phone booth which i love but it's not the same thing oh yeah that's not what we're talking about and you know it so yeah stop stop right there (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean this is kind of it's kind of a primer for the oodles of not the oodles but the extra gore we're gonna get later Yes, indeed. I I do really like this. The part where she's stepping on the broken glass in her bare feet. Oh, yeah. This death is a little mean. I mean, the the, the deaths in this movie are meaner than most of the deaths in the other. Actually, I say that, but then we have Vera Miles getting a a knife through her mouth through the back of her head in Psycho 2. That is true. I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is a good one. Go back and watch it. Oh, so good. Okay, so we hop back to the hospital. This is when Maureen is speaking to Father Brian. Oh, wait, wait, wait. By... Sorry. Um, I also yeah. forgot, though, there is another homage to Psycho when okay. he we, we get the mother, oh God, mother, blood after Red's death. Right. Again, didn't need it. Didn't need it. Yeah. No. So Maureen is speaking to Father Brian, who is played by Gary Bayer, and he... The scene is uncomfortable. He's basically well, berating her for losing her faith and trying He's to basically like, suicide it's a it's normal to be horny girl you're good just don't do it Ugh. and just yeah. like you know you would have gone to hell like you know it's a sin it's like she is recovering she yeah. tried to do this yesterday and see okay i know we mentioned the short run time because it's a 93 minute movie i it's not that i even need more scenes of maureen but i almost feel like she's just not like i get her deal but i almost wish she's not fleshed out enough or maybe not paired with norman enough to make her have as much of an impact as meg tilly in that second film i agree with that yeah because even in this scene it feels like they're setting up the later scene where she says no you know i i can save norman i need to go back to him but it's not quite like we're not spending enough time with her to see that arc Right, exactly. So it just feels like, like two scenes. But again, I, I pointed this out to you last night. The Wikipedia pa- summary for this movie is five paragraphs. Okay. Act one is paragraph one. Act two is paragraph two. And then act three is paragraphs three, four, and five. <laughs> well, a lot of stuff goes down at the end of this movie. <laughs> oh, wait till when we get to um, Ms. Venable's exposition dump as she's getting chased through the house. Oh, my God. 
God. I had to go and look it up because I was like, what are you talking no, about? No, I did the exact same. The first time I saw this movie, I was like, what did she say? Like, that what was a lot saying? of I'm trying to watch you not get murdered right now. Can you please not be expositioning? That's a very, yeah, we'll, yes, we'll get there. Okay, so Tracy, meanwhile, is trying to get information from Duke at the motel. And he, I mean, he has nothing to say because he barely knows Norman. So Norman has picked Maureen up and brought her back to the motel as they agreed upon and this is where the film loses me a little bit because the motel has also been infiltrated by partying <laughs> college students trace um it's i it yes this feels like hey how do we get more bodies here for norman to kill it 100 is that because i also don't know why he kills patsy played by as you mentioned cat shay I don't know why she, no. she like she's if if he's gonna kill anyone in this party, it's not her because she's the sober one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it and I guess maybe just because she was the only one by herself. Yeah, uh, that, sorry, but we're going a little too fast because I actually do like this almost sex scene between Norman and Maureen. It's yeah. I mean, they they go out, they have a nice date where he takes her out for dinner and drinks and they dance and then they come back. They have good chemistry. They do. Now, do you think Norman Bates is a virgin? I, yes. So I do too. And so I love this, it's not even a foil, but this juxtaposition of Norman, who's a virgin for, because of psychological trauma, Mm -hmm. and Maureen, who's a virgin because of her vows, but also kind of psychological trauma that hasn't, that hasn't made her mentally unstable. Well, actually, I'm sorry. Well, I think it kind of has. Yeah. Like it's it's at least set her off center. So there's such a great pairing and I, I, but this is really the last time we get them together to really like have moments of dialogue until Mm. her death. And that's kind of the bummer of this movie for me. Yeah, I did like that they start to initiate sex mm-hmm. and then they dial it back because that to me was very believable. Like, yes, you would want to, but also you're so not ready for this life-changing thing to happen. So he just abandons her in the middle of the night. Well, oh, it sucks. But it's also like, you know, obviously we've seen Norman be horny, but like not well, like usually ex- leads to murder <laughs> well but but not explicitly right because when he no. lusts for marion crane he does look at her but i mean granted the remake gives that masturbation scene but yeah. but like it's it's all just like it's subtle whereas this is the first time and if i'm forgetting something between him and meg tilly and two forgive me but the first time we've seen norman like in a makeout session i think so so i like that exploring this new avenue of his character and how he deals with it yeah and, you know, when she comes up to check on him and he's like, uh, I just really can't talk to you right now. I'm too busy slamming my hand onto a knife. I thought this was really shot interestingly, too, because so he's like inside the house and mm-hmm. it looks it's like Romeo and Juliet where she's like looking up into the window at him, like mm-hmm. ho- holding on to a, a pillar. Like it's I was like, this is Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> yeah, they are star-crossed lovers doomed for tragedy. Mm hmm. Yeah, it, it's so good. And I think these scenes do reinforce how much you want these two fallible, traumatized individuals to just kind of come together. The problem is, is that they're in the middle of a slasher film. Yes. And the, the difference between Mary in two and Maureen here is that, you know, we have Norman feeling for both of them. And also both these women do turn like feel things for Norman. Right. But you have the betrayal of Mary in two mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, I'm actually like Lila Loomis's daughter and I'm working to like put you away again. And you don't have that here. So I, I, I like that we're kind of like switching roles for the females here. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Hmm. 
Sorry, now I'm just, I'm kind of thinking of like, what are some of the other ways this film could have gone? But I know, uh, no, no. Um, but you know what? We, we can't be talking about these star-crossed lovers because we have partiers to dispatch Trace. So it turns out that Maureen was woken up by Patsy, one of these partiers, because Norman had fled the room so quickly he left the door open. <laughs> Norman. <laughs> so that was our introduction to Patsy. And then the very next scene that we get of her is she's like, I mean, she's just such a fun character, too. Like, she's yeah. a quintessential 80s stock secondary character. But like... You know, she just kind of casually goes to pee and then somebody comes in. She's like, hey, get out of here. And then gets her throat slit. Do you think that the, so she, the, the, is it supposed to be a scare when she sits on it and screams because the, the, the seat was pulled up? I don't know. <laughs> it's such a weird touch because she's like, "Ugh, men. And it's like, OK, that's cool. But like, <laughs> I mean, a... being raised by two women, I was frequently berated if I left the seat up. Here's the thing. I have always pulled the seat down. I have. So whenever I heard the first like, complaint from a woman about, oh, men always leave the seat up. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't just put the seat down. I put the seat and the lid down all the time, no matter what. Oh, wow. It, you are a, a scholar and a gentleman. It's just a habit. I don't understand what the issue is. Because uh, people are lazy. And because we can stand to pee, we just walk away. <laughs> but this death is quite bloody. It is. Yeah, it's a little bit shocking, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it's something that we haven't seen before. No. Although I, I can't remember, apart from Jurassic Park, the last time I saw a character bite it on a toilet. Ooh. Um technically in friday five uh, miguel nunez jr does die inside a um porta potty -potty. yeah (laughs) those enchiladas man oh god honestly what a terrible way to go i do not want to die while i'm on the toilet i don't want to die smelling my own shit (laughs) well thankfully for patsy she's only peeing from she is only peeing but she does die and then she is oh actually no because this is where we get more fun lighting Mm because norman comes to find her and the whole room is green Mm -hmm. (laughs) what are these kids up to uh, I mean, I, I have seen Blood Simple, but it's been a long time, and I don't, re- I mean, like, and by a long time, I mean, like, 15 years, so I mm-hmm. don't remember if there's lighting like this, but I have to imagine that there is. I think there is, yeah. It's it's shots of neon, but, like, not the kind of purpley neon that we've come to associate with films that are evoking the 80s. Like, I do remember it's a lot of greens and reds. Gotcha. Um, nevertheless, I do love the design choice here. I think it's it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I just no. love it. Yeah. So Patsy's body is discovered by Norman, and then uh, she is stuffed into, I call this an ice trunk, because I literally could not be like, what is, what do we call this, an ice machine? Uh, Ice bin? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) What's the technical term? But nevertheless, though, everyone is, comes to the motel. (laughs) Yeah, it's the, and you literally hear a yard line from the other partiers that says, we're out of ice, so you know this body's gonna get discovered. (laughs) So yeah, Trace is there like, well, he probably murdered her. The sheriff's like, he really didn't. He's rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. Duke is there, I think, maybe. Uh, Yes. Yeah. He's just kind of standing there watching this all unfold. <laughs> yeah. I do like, 
Again, a line that you wouldn't expect in a psycho movie, but the sheriff goes to Tracy. I've had enough of this Nancy Drew horseshit from you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a bit of an astute observation because she definitely thinks that she is motherfucking Nancy Drew. Like, she's going to crack this case. Oh, 100%. And super weird connection. But they went, they mentioned Nancy Drew and Kat Shea, whose body is in the ice bin, would mm-hmm. direct a Nancy Drew movie in her later life because it came out last year, two years uh, ago? Two, two years, years ago. ago now. Yeah. yeah. that's uh, imdb trivia uh, oh god of course it is no it's not i just said it would be because that's something stupid that would be on imdb trivia (laughs) it it definitely is and uh as someone who literally covered that from my other podcast i can say that version of nancy drew is pretty good i heard i think i shat talk it when we when i when we did there the carry two episode and i feel bad about it did because cat shay listened to that episode (laughs) whoops sorry cat shay (laughs) (laughs) come back and listen to this one we love you so, Trace, this is where we get that infamous scene mm. where the sheriff is sucking on bloody ice cubes. This, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you have thoughts. I, I don't even know what my thoughts are, Joe. Like, what is this? I love it. I love it. I love it. I also love the fact that Norman literally smirks as he watches the sheriff put it in. Like, yeah, I'm just sitting here getting away with it. <laughs> I, okay, I also, he just grabs ice casually from the ice bin to it's eat it hot. which it's very hot out right they're in california um <laughs> or are they they I, are I think yeah. they are. okay um but it's so again weird mm-hmm. this is weird well, and this for me is where that black comedy comes in right it's the kind of thing where you think oh this isn't scary this is funny well and, and you know i I looked at some of the reviews, not a lot, but a couple from the time, and a lot of them were lamenting that it wasn't scary and that there was no suspense to be had in this movie. And I was kind of like, I don't know mm. if that's the intention, though. Yeah, I I honestly see two and three as more dramas with murders in them. And I'm not disrespecting them as horror films, but it never seems like they're crescendoing to full-blown murder set pieces like this the scenes with explicit murders often feel more like oh right we need to put this in because the studio expects it yeah the body count for this movie is four Mm -hmm. yeah and it's inconsequential characters for the most part yeah pretty much i mean mean, the fact that tracy makes out of this movie alive is mind-boggling to me i can't i I can't believe it (laughs) again way to uh subvert my expectations there psycho (laughs) three I thought she was going to bite it for sure. Oh, 100%. But she has too much exposition to dump. <laughs> this is true. You can't kill me. I know all the exposition. <laughs> I'm the killer in Stab 3. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so the the reason that Tracy is there is not because she, well, A, because everyone knows that Patsy has gone missing, but also because she is there to pick up Maureen. So Maureen now knows who Norman is, and she leaves. We do get that brief scene where he kind of tries to explain to Maureen and she says yeah I know that's why I just gave you that fake alibi about you being with me all night but I'm still gonna go yeah yeah Good I like for her, it but... like it, it these feel like real people yeah like this is not a scene that should be in this film but it's there because we care about these characters mm-hmm. for sure yeah it, it's really good I, I do wish we had more of a conversation between Maureen and Norman though that, again that's that's my yeah. only wish for this yeah we we just want more of them mm-hmm uh, but it's too late for that because we've got to lure Norman to cabin 12 as the sky clouds over and <laughs> a sweaty and hyperventilating Duke is there ready to blackmail him. This room, I think it's even darker and more poster covered than it was before. 
Which, again, if you think of Duke as the secret killer of this movie, makes perfect sense. No, it does. But yeah, he has kidnapped the body of Mrs. Spool and is Mm -hmm. just holding it ransom. And kissing it. Uh, It is so bizarre. So we get this fight, which is pretty fun and messy and dirty. I mean, it literally plays as a cartoon is on the TV. Like, if you don't know how to read this scene, it is a cartoon. No, but the, 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 the cherry on top of this scene the cartoon mm-hmm. is woody woodpecker yeah and woody woodpecker so after he has knocked out duke woody woodpecker on the tv laughs and norman looks mm-hmm. at the, the corpse of mrs spool and just goes mothers don't laugh at me yes like i it, yes I, I, I love it just, i love it yes, so yes. much <laughs> It's so, but uh, and I think we're meant to read this as wow. Norman's psyche has fractured so much that he thinks well, the TV is speaking for his mother. But it's also just so weird and fun. <laughs> I and so that I will walk back a little bit what I said about how I hate that it's like oh Norman killing people again because I think it's just because honestly after two. You care so much about Norman and you want to see him succeed. Mm-hmm. So that this whole movie is about again him him losing his mind again. Yeah. It's it's tragic to see it. It is. And it doesn't work if Perkins doesn't invest so much humanity into the performance. He could have gone over the top with this and he is almost playing the straight man through both two and three mm-hmm. and i think it only makes the film stronger i 100 percent agree with you I, it's still a three star film for me three yeah. for three yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> but i do actually i think i gave scream three a three and oh hell is a three is a three and a half so <laughs> it's close <laughs> we're, we're consistent if nothing else <laughs> yeah true <laughs> but yes no i, I agree with you 100 percent. okay so Duke is down for the count. He's taken an ashtray to the head, a lamp to the head, and his guitar to the head several times. Mm-hmm. And as Norman prepares to dispose of these bodies, we also see Tracy is digging into Emma's spool, and Maureen is telling Father Brian that she thinks she can rescue him, so she's going to come back to the motel. So there's a lot happening all at once. <laughs> okay, so a couple things with this. So... Tracy's investigation, so it's basically like she learns from the owner of the diner that Mrs. Spool worked there bef- like under the, the, the diner's previous ownership. So she goes to see the that owner, who is now in an old folks' home. Yes. <laughs> and that's when he tells her, like, oh, yeah, she was also committed for a while. Which is important. So I, I honestly was like, oh, wait, right, this is happening. But yes, all mm-hmm. the while, like, Maureen is doing her thing. So we're, we're kind of cross-cutting between this. Yeah, we've got three different lines of action, but we're not quite giving... I mean, I don't know that I actually even need a lot of this Tracy stuff. I know that it pays off in the climax, but it also kind of doesn't. And I would have loved, again, this should have been more with Maureen, like wrestling with it. I would have rather Tracy get that... The story that we that she explains to Norman in the climax, mm-hmm. I would rather this this man tell her that or I, I don't know. Like, it's ha- a big gasp-worthy moment here, right? Right. Not not during the action-packed climax because it distracts from, and that's what makes the climax kind of like well, for me a little bit. Yeah. But we also now have a kind of another homage to Psycho One, but again, it subverts it when Norman is attacked by Duke in the car, and they mm-hmm. go into the water. Yeah, I like it. We should also mm-hmm. mention that he does full-on kiss Patsy on the lips when he breaks her out of the ice bin oh, bucket thing. 
and breaks her arm as she pulls it out. <laughs> good sound effect. I liked it. No, it's really good. There's a great shot from the interior of the car as like the car floods and sinks. I like it. He's got his foot on Duke's neck, which is also pressing into the accelerator. Mm-hmm. It's so mm-hmm. good. And then this extended underwater shot of like mm-hmm. him escaping from the water. It's it's it, it's poetic because again, that's how he disposed of Marion Crane's body was by you know dumping her the car with her body in the river yes. or the lake or whatever the fuck. <laughs> and so I kind of it's so appropriate that like that's also how Norman also meets his end. It reminds me of a movie called Night of the Hunter as well, which has got this gorgeous underwater sequence where somebody has to escape from a vehicle and it's it's poetic, it's beautiful. I think this is honestly one of the more thrilling sequences in this film. Yeah. So sadly that is the end of Duke. We are done with him for sure now. Yeah. And again, like I said earlier, I just I wish he had a bloodier death. He's the only male death in this movie, and it's the least bloody. I mean, I guess the nun in the beginning was... No, there was blood out of her head. Like so yeah. it, it kind of sucks that he's like... You, if you want to play into the whole slashers or misogynistic thing, this movie um would sometimes support that. Yeah. I think just because Duke felt like the most logical antagonist to Norman. Like he's the one who's actively trying to hurt Norman. Everybody else is kind of just either in Norman's way or is a true victim. Yeah. Yep. Uh, So speaking of true victims, we return to the house. Maureen is there. She's dressed in a satin nightgown. So apparently she's going to save him by like fucking him, right? I think that's... Well, no, because yeah, they're both virgins. She's like, we can come together <laughs> yes indeed maureen yes indeed so norman is actually responsive to this except that then he gets distracted by mother and he inadvertently kills maureen in the exact same way that she inadvertently killed the nun in the beginning so oh i didn't even put that together that makes sense because the shot looks almost the same as she's falling down the stairs as the nun does at the beginning see though that shot of her falling down the stairs is like as a replica of when the detective arbogast gets killed oh, in sure. psycho one yeah yeah because yeah it's like the green but, uh, but yeah, her her the back of her head gets impaled on the arrow of like a of an angel statue or like a cupid statue yeah because they're star-crossed lovers which i love it's it's really good it's really but it is sad like i, I don't think it's as sad as when um, mary dies in part two because that again i i don't think i I didn't expect Meg Tilly to die in that movie. And I I didn't even think I really expected Maureen to die in this movie. But no. um, again, because she's a less, like, mm-hmm. we spend less time with her. It's not quite as effective. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you haven't spent that time. So she's not as significant a character. My question, though. So they both hear Mother's voice. And it comes from the bedroom. Mm, I'm yes. really confused by that. That is some movie logic that I don't get. Oh, didn't like, you know that uh, Norman Bates is also a trained ventriloquist? Because like, he can throw his voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been established. It's canon, Trace. Come well, on. Well, like, I think because like, if Mary wouldn't have been shocked to hear it, I think that would have made sense. Like, okay, we're just hearing Norman. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's Norman hearing it from the bedroom, whatever. But Mary, uh, Maureen does hear it. And that, that was kind of like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But listeners, if you have a correction for this, by all means, tell us. I wonder if it is something to do with her kind of evangelical, like she's finally willing to accept someone into her life and that's when she's touched by the divine and she can hear the otherworldliness of mother. I think I would buy into that more if we got any more of that post the Virgin Mary. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's a flaw for me, but it's not a deal breaker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And especially just because like, 
Well, Maureen's done now, so... Yeah, she, she is out of the movie, minus her, her pristine corpse <laughs> on that couch later, hold, yeah, holding a we, candle. Can we get a little bit of blood coming out of that head onto that couch, please? Because yeah. she looks immaculate. <laughs> yeah, she looks great. And also, like, I feel like she would have gone into rigor mortis, so, like, trying to get her hands to hold that candle, it, I, I don't think that would work. Oh, wait, but... you want some more cracking sound effects? <laughs> yeah, break off her arm. <laughs> oh, God. Who's the misogynist now? So, but again... You think the climax of this movie is going to involve Maureen and and Norman. Yeah. But it's not. No. It's, Tracy it's Tracy and Norman. <laughs> Fucking Tracy. <laughs> about, by the way, apparently they uh, Tracy was like a, like a 20-something-year-old in the script, but mm-hmm. they changed her when they cast the um, when Roberta. They cast, uh, Roberta Maxwell because they just liked her so much. Yeah. And I don't think the film suffers. To be honest, I think it would have been confusing to have had two kind of ingenues. Well, and that, I, I thought the same thing, so that's why I think it kind of works. Because I think if you have the two ingenues, ingenue, whatever, ingenue, young women, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, I don't know if I would like that because it it's kind of like, oh, it's Maureen and Tracy competing, which maybe was the intention of the original screenplay. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, but, I, I definitely don't like it. No, I don't like it. I like this more. Yeah. Um, and again, not saying Trace is a likable character, but she's a good character. She is. It, and I think that is the other thing that maybe merits why she is at the climax, because in a way we know more about Tracy than we ever knew about Maureen. Well, she's less of a complex character. Maureen's a lot more complex, isn't given the proper amount of screen time to delve into those complexities. Okay. Whereas Tracy is, I'm not going to say like one dimensional, but like, you know, she's got one goal and that's all we <laughs> need to know about her. She's She's easy to figure out this one. Yeah. So, okay, she finds Maureen's body on the couch. She calls her, like, a stupid, naive girl. <laughs> yeah, she, she has no sympathy for this dead body. <laughs> but, what? Okay, so Norman pops up behind her. Mm-hmm. We get the ADR of Mother's Voice over yeah. Norman, which I... Eh. I Yeah, I think it just looks really weird. Well, he's also still partially in shadow, so you can see part of anthony perkins face but you can also still like they're not making an effort to fully display the mother regalia right well yeah because i think it's it's just head like it's we see the wig on him but like when he speaks it's like because i think that was supposed to be like a big moment where it's like oh we've never because every time we've seen mother speak like i'm sorry seeing quotes Mm -hmm. it's always off camera like i'm thinking back in the first one whenever the cop brings norman the blanket and we just hear thank you from off screen right yeah so this is the first time we've seen norman's lips move to actually speak for mother and Mm -hmm. i think it was supposed to be a big reveal and it just doesn't really work uh no because honestly this to me feels too indebted to one again i just the thing i'm least interested about in norman is when he becomes mother i'm interested in him as an adult male who's grappling with the trauma that his mother right. put him through. But you know what I do love? Him hacking this fucking corpse? Um, well, before that, I okay. love him chasing Tracy up the stairs and fixing the crooked portrait on the wall oh as he comes God. up to stalk her. <laughs> Norman has priorities. He likes to keep a clean house. Oh, well, it's mother. It's not Norman. It's mother. This is true. Yeah. So this is where Tracy is dumping this 
fuck ton of exposition <laughs> about how Emma Spool was mentally unstable and she was in love with your father and then he didn't want to be with her. So she killed him and she tried to abduct you. And then she went to the institution. You're like, okay, Tracy, we need you to calm down. The first time I saw this, I was literally like, I had to rewind Wait, what? it. Like, what is she saying? So, yeah. The, yeah, you got it right. The only detail you left out is that he married Emma Spool's sister, who is yes. Norma Bates instead. Yeah, so she she is his aunt, but she believed that she was his mother, which is why at the end of two, she shows up and says, I'm your real mom. But which is an not. interesting retcon. I do wonder what the original idea was. If there was one, like it, to to have it have her continue to be his actual mother, or if it was always the plan to like, no, no, no. It, if we do a sequel, she'll be his aunt. I don't know because I can see this not working for a bunch of different people. Because if you make her his real mother, then thinking of two more specifically, then you're saying that there's generational mental illness. Like it's a hereditary thing that she passed right. down to him. It's messy and complex. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, yeah, it, it is. And the this movie, unfortunately, is kind of the most... Well, I mean, it's not that the movie is not complex. It presents a lot of complex ideas. It just doesn't really follow through on all of them. Yeah. And I think it's because this climax is pretty rushed. Oh, God, it's so rushed. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Like, everything happens in the last 15 minutes of this movie. Like, I think when Maureen shows up, like, there are 15 minutes left. Wow. Maybe less than that. I think less. Yeah. Um, oh, no, actually, you're right. Because I think when Tracy shows up, there's, like, five minutes left of the movie. <laughs> yeah, they're like, no, no, we're running out of film. Roberta, deliver your lines faster. Go, 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 go. Oh, it may, it's, it, I don't know what the, what the, the thought process was behind all of this mm-hmm. because it, it, it's really messy. And again, compare that to the climax of two, which is way better with its reveals and the standoff of like Norman and Mary and the cops. And oh, it's so good. Yeah. Sorry, not uh, the cops, just Norman, Norman and Mary. I, I think that in this case, they thought moving it faster will create more tension and scares but it doesn't come off that way. It only feels rushed. Yeah, it feels rushed and honestly a little goofy. A little goofy. There were a couple points where I was like, is she just going to spin while she's trying to get away from him? <laughs> and then you have the mother going, she's a lying whore. She's a slut. I mean, what what's your problem, mom? <laughs> what's wrong with sluts and whores? Hmm? But I do like this moment for Norman where he like overcomes the mother persona, pulls off the wig, yes. gets get, pulls off the dress. And then we get this great shot again where he like, the knife is up and you have the, sh- it's like a silhouette of, mm-hmm. of Tracy holding the knife, his arms to like stop from getting stabbed. Oh, yes. it's really cool. Yes. Um, this was actually my favorite part of the climax because again, I did just think he was going to kill her and then that would be the end of the film. So for her, to be fighting back, but still not quite being able to figure out what's happening. Like the way it's shot, yeah. it could go either way. And then we just see him hacking away at Emma Spool's corpse. And it is really cathartic. It, it really, really is. It's also a good, like, I mean, it looks good. Like with the head falling off yeah. and just like the body torn turning to dust. Yeah. The actual practical effects look good. Oh yeah. No, it does. And again, the, it's a good moment for Norman mm-hmm. to do this. Like, and also for the audience. I mean, if you've been with this franchise for the past 26 years, like, yeah, <laughs> that's a moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Norman has overcome Mother, which you can understand then why Perkins wanted it to end here. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Then we just have this kind of like little last bit. Once again, the Psycho Coda. 
I really do. I feel so bad for this sheriff because he's just like, oh, Norman, they're going to put you away forever now. And you also made me look like a fool. Norman, I was cheering for you. Come on, man. What are you doing? But he's free. He is free of mother. But is he really, Joe? No, because he has secretly squirreled away one of her hands and he's got his infamous grin on as we're driving away. Which is really funny because, you know, they're just going to take the hand away from him as soon as he goes through like the booking process i mean where are you gonna hide that hand norman how long do you think you're gonna get to hang on to it up his butt i guess i i guess <laughs> but then it's gonna turn to dust yeah a dusty butt no thank you sir <laughs> so much bacteria <laughs> but yeah i mean so yeah that, that's psycho three joe what are your thoughts on this movie i mean i know we've kind of like, talked about it for an hour and a half but mm-hmm I ended up liking it more than I thought I was going to. As I said off the top, I thought that it was going to be campy and messy. And instead, it just feels adventurous. And Mm -hmm. it's got a surprising amount of subversion. So overall, it doesn't quite work as well as one or two for me. But I liked it a lot. I I agree. It feels like a first-time director trying things. Like This does not feel like a safe directing effort from Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Which I love. Oh, I, I agree. And while, yeah, I, I think the film kind of loses itself in that last act, I still think there's a lot to enjoy about this. And so when I see people writing this off as like a shitty movie, I'm just like, honestly, no. like, I, I I get maybe a shitty sequel. Maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But as a movie, I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, if you're a franchise purist, I could maybe see it. But again, I think you have to reward this film for the things that it's trying because it's not playing it safe. Like, you could have gotten very straightforward psycho sequels. And neither 2 nor 3 is doing what you would expect from, I mean, let's be honest, all the other franchises that are coming out at this time. Right? Oh, yeah. No, if if you're looking at, again, we're looking at Halloween, Friday the 13th, um, Child's Play hasn't started yet, um, but we've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre had already, I think this is this, oh, T- Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 came out this year. Yeah, it's just like, it's so different from all those, and it's set, it's set apart, it sets itself apart from them so much, and I'm, I'm almost bummed that this franchise doesn't get more, like, mentions or appraisals. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a lot of people would say, I mean, I, I can't speak to four, but I do feel like there's a lot of fans for Bates Motel and I don't think that that series is super successful in all the ways that it tries to reinvent some of this but it does do a lot of work with Norman and Mother specifically. Do you watch the whole series right? I did and if I could give it a big 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 fucking kudos for one thing it was casting Rihanna against type as Marion Crane. And she was re- they subverted your expectations. It was really good and she was good. She was re- uh, to the point where I was like, "Hi, do I want Rihanna in more things? I think I do." And the thing with Bates Motel is it was those early seasons where it was like, okay, well, the scenes with Norman and Norma are great. Everything else is really stupid. Yeah, I hated the drug running subplots. And it's as bad. much as I like that Max Theria, Therio, guy, the sex like, slavery thing was stupid. What? No. But, but honestly, I think it's a five season show. About halfway through season three is when it I think. It starts to it, figure its shit out. And it gets Well, good. and that's the thing, you know, it's a, it's a big aspect. Well, you got to get past the first two seasons. There are, there are good things in those first two seasons, but yeah. it's exclusively anything with norman and norma it's all the tertiary characters that you're just like oh why are there subplots for these people yeah um who's the girl is it olivia cook 
No. Uh, yes, she's very good in it too. But then there's the blonde one from one of the Transformers movies. Oh, who's... she fucking sucks. Yeah, she sucks. I I actually love it. She got the job on Transformers, so she had to leave the show, and then they just never bring her back. And I was so delighded. Well, they, no, they do bring her back. Do they and bring they her kill back? Her oh, ass. they kill her. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and see, no, I I think that was the turning point for the show for me, though, where I was like, oh, good, because I think it was the first time Norman. Sorry, y'all, we're spoiling some of the show, but I think it was the first time Norman killed someone, and right. so then the rest of the season focuses on that and then season four and five i think are like like really like yeah. a quality tv for me yeah it's meaty stuff it's good drama yeah so anyway y'all <laughs> it, 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 bates motel seasons four and five and half a three great there you go first first two were like uh, half good half bad yeah yeah Anyway, okay, so before we announce what we're covering next week, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Horror Queers Facebook group to hang out with other listeners. Also, follow us on Letterboxd, because that is new and super fun, and we love it. Sure. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, but Apple Podcasts is always the best one. Uh, and if you'd like to even more horror queers, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horror queers. We're almost done with January, so we've already released the results of the 2020 Hereditaries, as well as our audio commentary on Final Destination 3 and our episode on Promising Young Woman, the controversial film to hit theaters last month and VOD this month. I was going to say, yes, theaters for that hot, <laughs> sweet second. Yeah, yeah, it's super fun. Uh, but we we, uh, upcoming uh, later this week we'll have an episode on Apple TV's Servant and next week we will close out January with a uh, uh, episode on CBS All Access's The Stand which um, well, we have Meh. mixed thoughts about <laughs> <laughs> you know what there's got to be a dud in every bunch Trace and... it, you are correct and that was ours for January <laughs> but Joe yes we have one more week of threes left and we've teased this movie a lot what are we discussing next week well it ain't no fucking dud let me tell you that <laughs> Trace, I am so excited. We are going back to the Alien universe, and we're going to cover Alien 3. And with a little asterisk, folks, we are not watching the theatrical cut. We are watching the extended edition of Alien 3. Yes. Um, I will confess, I've seen this movie maybe three times. Oh, huh, three. Oh, my God. <laughs> I I like it, but I don't enjoy it because it's uh, a very upsetting okay. film. It is, yeah. There's a lot riding on this movie, but I will say in a lot of the ways that we praised Anthony Perkins today, I'm probably going to be showering a lot of praise on one Sigourney Weaver next week because that lady had balls in the way that she handled what she thought was the end of that franchise. I agree. And before we say anything else, we will just say leave it to next week. Mm -hmm. And on that note, we can cross out Psycho 3. Yes, and cross out horror queers. You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more.
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 